Phoenix Overlook Pop Culture. Okay, I do. Um, this is episode 94. Uh, we've had to fight with uh, Hangouts just to get this thing to work. So I'm going to make it worth our time and get this uh, show on the road. Um, we recently discovered the possibility of water on Mars. And that in and of itself is pretty exciting. Uh, the uh, First of all, what was your first reaction when when that popped up. Which one of us? Either one of you. Okay. You go ahead, Chris. I'm trying to pull up my links real quick. Well, uh, I wasn't really actually all that surprised. Um, I followed the Mars mission since I was in high school. Um, I spent a lot of time here at Tech as an astrophysics major, and... Um, you know, we've we've been making very curious discoveries about uh, water on Mars for the last eight or nine years, really, longer than that, really. But um, we've we've had evidence in the past of what's called transport, water transport on Mars, which is what Curiosity has seen recently, and that's ev- evidence that water ice has melted and it has flowed down a slope or from an area, a high area to a low area. And we've seen there's been snow measured falling from Martian clouds near the North Pole. Of course, the polar caps are filled with water ice. Um, 2005 or six, I believe it was, Spirit rover found water ice about three or four inches under the soil at the equator. So, I mean, I wasn't too surprised that this announcement was, you know, what it was. And Shaggy, what was your first thoughts when, when they're like, "Oh, there just might be water on Mars"? Well, I'm I'm with Curtis on the fact that I knew that there technically was water on Mars before we discovered running water, um, because there have been polar ice caps there for as long as we've been studying and researching Mars, from sending probes and um, satellites that have slingshot past it. And, taking images on their way, or even from the Hubble telescope or from other telescopes that are in observatories here on Earth. Right. Um, the, the thing that I found the most fascinating was that it wasn't just that the, the, the fact that there's running water, which is really exciting, I find more exciting rather than surprising. Um, but... It's, it's interesting because after looking up some information about it and then seeing a couple of articles, it really just kind of piqued my interest, which is why I suggested this episode in the first place, was uh, a combination of the actual mineral and compound content of the water is so much different than ours. And uh, there's a Facebook page and a website that I go through and view a lot. It's called Science Alert. Which it's not like um, what is it? I fucking love science, which is absolutely retarded, and I completely agree with everything that Maddox said the last time we <laughs> mentioned it. <laughs> right. Um, it's. I mean, sometimes you do have to take it with a tad bit of a grain of salt, but sometimes they they exaggerate and stuff like that. But they had a headline on there about uh, why the Mars rover, in this case, they're talking about Curiosity, is banned from investigating actually 
doing further research on the water. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why is that? So I did some more research and found out that there's an actual interstellar treaty that was uh, put into place by the UN, which was in coordination with a bunch of nations. Um, the the idea behind the treaty was you don't want to contaminate, you know, a different environment with you know stuff that we bring into it. We want to keep it as undisturbed as possible in order to you know get the maximum discovery, what have you, out of it. Because you know going in there not caring could inadvertently kill something that could be a major discovery um, as well. So that's that's a concern to a lot of people outside. It sounds like this doesn't make any sense at all, but um, like Curtis, your thoughts on this whole treaty thing? Well, the, the treaty was um, started by the scientific community. It went through the United Nations, I think, in the 80s, right after uh, the Pioneer and Viking missions to Mars in the, in the late 70s. And um, there's a big fear about contaminating another uh, place in the solar system, another body. So an asteroid or Mars or Venus or one of the moons of Jupiter like Enceladus or, or Titan and, and Saturn and so on. Um, because the fear is is that it's going to be very difficult to have a discovery of life, say, on Mars, and then to have to come back a month later and say, you know, we've been able to look at it and confirm that it was actually microbes that flew to Mars with the um, with the rover or the, or the probe. And so scientifically it makes sense why they enacted such a treaty. Uh, doing it as a treaty also was was the best way to ensure that other nations would follow suit, uh, especially those with space programs who were getting ready to start exploring the outer planets. I think it's a good idea. Um, it's definitely... Uh, it can seem invasive, I guess, in, in a way, but uh, I, I understand why it was put into place. But the, they're talking about possibly um, finding ways to stay within those guidelines, 3D, taking advantage of 3D printing, as in producing new robots once you know they enter the surface that are not contaminated with any outside influences. Well, the problem with that is is that if it comes from Earth, it's going to have the potential to be contaminated. Even if it's you're making 3D printing the new robots, you have to send a 3D printer and all of the things that the 3D printer is going to use to make new robots, which means that every single item has a potential to have some form of contamination. Um, a couple of years ago, there's a lake called Lake Vostok. It's in uh, Antarctica, and it is an underground lake or sea. And it, it the Russians scientists in in, uh, in Antarctica have been working for the past 15, maybe 20 years to break into that lake because that lake has a frozen layer of ice that has basically effectively sealed it off 
from the rest of the surface for the last 30 to 50,000 years. You're not exactly sure how long, but it's in that time frame. And so what that means is, is that Lake Vostok is actually the closest place to an alien environment that we can get to with people right now. The, if it's 50,000 years old, 30,000 years old, the bacteria and, and uh, protists and things living in that lake will have been separated from the rest of life on Earth for a long time and had a chance to go through several different evolutionary phases. And so what the Russians have been doing with this lake is using it as a training place, basically, to figure out how they could do similar missions on other worlds, spe uh, specifically Enceladus and Europa, which are two icy bodies uh, that orbit Saturn and, and, and Jupiter. Um, and they've been trying to come up with all kinds of techniques about how to, like, put something down to seal the ice, new ways of using radiation to sterilize equipment, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that is what is going to help us figure out how to do it more safely and how to keep potential for contamination down as low as possible. Well, and the problem that we have right now with using our current techniques of sanitation, which is either massive amounts of heat, which will damage electronics, which are always sent into space with any sort of probe or robot, or immense amounts of radiation, not small amounts of radiation, which can also damage um, electronics. So, well, I mean, and radiation damages near, nearly anything, if not everything, <laughs> in some ways. So, um, so this, and this begs the question of whether we'll be able to see a, a human expedition to Mars in our lifetime. Um, that's kind of up in the air. I'm thinking maybe not as much. Certainly have gotten closer to a possibility, but uh, there's still so much more to me to learn before even attempting such a thing. Well, uh, that's... You know, actually, I, I kind of disagree because that is the purpose of what's been going on at Lake Vostok. Um, it is not entirely only a Russian venture. The U.S., the Chinese are doing similar programs, and in some cases I know Russia and the U.S. Uh, have been working together and sharing data and information. And Mars is not, I think, the most likely place to have to worry about microbial life. I really don't think that we're going to see any active biology on Mars. Now, with that being said, um, places like Enceladus, uh, Titan, Europa, Ganymede, some of these Jovian moons, maybe even Venus, these places that have actual atmospheres, um, those are the concern areas that you have to worry about contaminating. And so I do think we'll see a mission to Mars, you know, at some point um, in our lifetimes. I, in fact, I mean, if, if you're to believe uh, Mars, uh, was it Mars 1, I think, is the program or something like that, they're ready to go by 2022 or something like that. Um, and I think that you'll see what would be the proper <laughs> discourse for it. I think you'll see um, new solutions to these problems also creep up. I mean, the amount of research that's currently being done is actually pretty mind-boggling. Uh, it's quite cool to look at and see. 
what different universities and different labs are coming up with. All right. So, Shaggy, do you think we'll be having a Mars expedition in our lifetime? Yeah, I can I can see it happen. Um, I don't know if we'll actually hit it by 2022 by the uh, mission that they're going to have. And the reason why I think that is because if you look back at when you sent people onto the moon or then take that into account when factoring in that we're going to try and travel all the way to Mars, the distance between Earth and the moon is, I don't know exact numbers, but it's relatively very, very small compared to the distance between Earth and Mars. And some of the estimates that I can think of off the top of my head that I've read are anywhere between 10 to 20 years that it would take to get from Earth to Mars with current technology. Well, actually, you should be able to make it in about three months. Um, the, The issue with years is that what you have to do is you have to wait until Mars is at its closest approach in its orbit, and then you launch your craft. Um, at that point, uh, from when Earth and Mars are closest together, you're going to see about a three-and-a-half to four-month trip there. Um, that happens, I believe, once or so every two years. So what you would have to do is you would send someone to Mars at the closest approach, and then they're going to have to wait another year, year-and-a-half to come back when it reaches closest approach again. Um, but this is not... Uh, so much a problem anymore because a lot of the uh, former NASA contractor companies are coming out with brand new engine designs. I know, I think it's um, I think it's Orbital Dynamics is the name of the company that has the ion rocket that is pretty much tested and ready, and it can guarantee a speed of about 30 meters per second in the vacuum of space, which is quite fast. I think the space shuttle is going something like a meter per minute, you know, in the vacuum of space. Or so, probably even lower than that in terms of speed, so. Pretty impressive. Um, Like, I I only, I am only, like, somewhat skeptical because, you know, the year 2000 was supposed to be the year that we, you know, suddenly have all these cool, you know, hovering vehicles and everything else, and then boom, the internet happens, <laughs> and it's just like, what happened to all the flying cars? You know, what happened? You know, well, actually, Tommy, the problem with that is, is that a lot of the popular notion about flying cars and hoverboards and things was just garbage science to begin with. I most uh, people who were scientists or engineers, never believed that that was really going to be possible by the year 2000, you know. Um, It wasn't even being worked on uh, by anyone, really, other than a few theoreticians doing papers about the possibility of anti-gravity or how such things would work. Um, You know, like you mentioned, the Internet was the big issue of the 80s and 90s. Um, And... It, I would argue, has been actually more impressive to me than a, than a flying car. But F- fair enough. It's, I mean, I, I've used it fairly extensively, obviously, to communicate with people around the world. Um, it, it, it's just, you know, when you think we might start heading towards that, and then something else comes along, and 
you know, reminds me of the whole 3DFX commercials of, you know, that this, you know, process is capable of so many operations per second, you know, and they're showing all these possible advances, including like medical advances. Oh, let's use it to make video games with. And the guy suddenly has a heart attack and falls off the, you know, running machine and everything else, <laughs> reminding me of, <laughs> of that. And I'm, I'm one, I'm wondering if there isn't some, you know, distraction involved and in kind of delaying things a bit. And is that necessarily a bad thing either? But, um. <laughs> You know, that that's that's where I'm like, oh and and will co- corporations see their um pet industry as being threatened by innovation too? Because that's because I've seen that as kind of a problem as well. Yeah. That also holds back innovation. I'd like to see it happen. Yeah. I think one of the biggest problems with innovation and space technology is that it's very expensive research to do. The United States has learned in the last, I don't know, five or six years this lesson that robots are cheaper than people and robots are doing more than people ever could in space. And that's why you've seen a decline in the U.S. manned space program uh, as opposed to the unmanned space program, which has actually accomplished more in the last... 10, 15 years than the entire space program as a whole did throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, uh, which is really impressive. Um, Since we started sending rovers to Mars, they've rewritten the main Martian textbooks 30, 50, 60 times. You know, I mean, you'd have to go and count editions to see all the changes, all the information. So, do you... but um, so the main pattern now is send robots out first, scout the area, find out as much as you can about it, then send humans with more robots. Well, I think um, if you look at, at least in the theoretical side, the science side, the scientists are saying just send the robots and don't even waste time sending people. Sending people creates all kinds of problems because you have um, – psychiatric issues that arise from space travel, bone density, radiation exposure, uh, lack of of ability to interact with a doctor or medical professionals. You have uh, relationship issues, fights are potential problems. And then, of course, you've got all the propulsion, how to take all the food, water, supplies you need, and all of that. When a robot, you just need a little bit of uranium or plutonium and a good chassis, and it's good to go, and it can do, you know, a lot more, like I said, than I think people can. Now, eventually, yeah, I think people will break out into the solar system and begin to do lots of things. But I honestly, I really think that the next 50 years is really going to be the age of robotic exploration, and it's only going to get better as nations like India and China and the uh, European Space Agency, Greece, Iran... Uh, and so on, Japan start to really participate with the United States and maybe even sometimes comp- compete with them to uh, make new discoveries and make new types of technology that can survive. As, as Shaggy mentioned earlier, 
issues with too much heat or radiation for electronics. I know the Japanese are working extensively to try to overcome a lot of those problems. And they're producing a lot of papers right now, especially in mechanical and electrical engineering, on solutions to issues like that. Well, um, I do hate to cut it short, but I have to be at work soon. So um, any closing thoughts on this? Um, I'll let Shaggy go first. Well, see, I had I had some things to say earlier, and you pretty much took everything. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I guess um, when it comes to like talking about the age of oh yeah, here we go. <laughs> talking about the next fifty years becoming the age of robotic exploration, I can agree with that. And something that I would like to see would be more exploration of not just Mars or the Moon, but I'd love to see us be able to go to like, uh, Saturn and Jupiter's moons that we mentioned earlier, earlier like Ion, uh, Titan. Titan's a volcanic um, moon, right, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, well, it has some active volcanism, but it's actually very similar to Venus. It has an atmosphere. It has liquid lakes of, of methane on it. It's pretty neat. And Venus has more of an acidic, very, very acidic atmosphere than Titan does. Titan's more of a gas and similar to giant it lives with. And then Europa is just a giant ball of ice with what we think is water underneath. We haven't been able to research that yet, which that would be really exciting to be able to like drill down in and put like a probe down inside there and see what's going on. Because they, they don't understand, they 100% understand what the core is. But the speculation is that it's similar to the core of, like, Saturn or Jupiter, where it's a very, very, very super dense, tight ball of multiple metals and rock and all kinds of other stuff. So, and that's, so that's, I'd also like to see us explore Venus more. And the problem with that is that the atmosphere is so acidic and it just breaks down anything we've sent in there so far. Um, any last words, uh, Curtis, on this? Well, I think this is not the obviously it's not the first discovery, but it certainly won't be the last. And I think the next year is really going to be integral to confirming the water transport and seeing what else, what other information they can pull out of it. So, I mean, it's it's obviously not done yet. We're still going to pull a lot of information on Mars. Well. Um Hopefully we'll keep making progress on this um, and all of that. Uh, I I do see how we can get sidetracked, distracted from innovation discoveries due to, well, unfortunately, politics around the world. Things like that can be a very hindering factor to innovation. Uh, I do... I would like to see the idea of human exploration and expanding outside of Earth because at some point, whether we like to admit it or not, um, we can do all the preserving we can, but if Earth decides to just upchuck tomorrow, there's not a whole hell of a lot we can do about it. So my hope is to explore to the point where we can survive outside of this planet and keep going. But we'll see what the future brings us. 
Um, entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself. Um, we'll be back next week, and hopefully we'll have something even more bizarre, interesting, what have you. So take care, everybody. See you guys. See ya.